Better World. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Today we're going to be looking at some local New York City issues. Uh, the uh, population of New York City is so international that it's hard to refer to it and think of it as a local issue since it, anything that goes on here is affecting people in their respective countries across the world. Interestingly enough, if their families are experiencing something here, there are repercussions elsewhere. So that's just part of the, uh, the cost and the excitement of living in an international city like New York. So to grapple with some of the issues, just a few of the issues we'll have time for today, is City Council Member Dan Grodnick. A little bit about Dan. He was praised by the New York Times for his independent streak in his first year on the city council, and he established himself as a leader in the fight for affordable housing, spearheading the $5.4 billion tenant-backed bid for the uh, purchase of Stuyvesant Town and Peter Cooper Village, which ended up to be the largest real estate transaction in all of U.S. history. Actually, that's what it sold for, the bid that was uh, brought forth by Dan Grodnick at all was $4.5 billion, which was still a very, very steep climb upward. But he did manage to organize this enormous, enormous amount of money on behalf of the tenants. With a background in civil rights and education advocacy, Dan Grodnick represented the Partnership for New York City in the landmark Campaign for Fiscal Equity lawsuit. Before joining the City Council, he also directed the New York Civil Rights Coalition's Unlearning Stereotypes Civil Rights and Race Relations Program in 42 New York City public high schools, teaching students nonviolent ways to combat racial discrimination and how to use the processes of government to affect social change. Additionally, Dan represented 13 same-sex couples seeking marriage equality in New York State and sought and received funding to rebuild African-American churches in Virginia, Georgia, uh, burned by racially motivated arson. So it's really, really with great pleasure that I have Dan Gorodnik on our airwaves again. He was on some time ago uh, discussing matters of fracking and environmental issues that are, were and are different faced, but still facing uh, New York City at large. Dan Gorodnik, welcome to A Better World. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to have you on again. You know, when we look at issues facing uh, New York City, any large city, there are many parallels between the municipalities across this country and elsewhere. One of the large issues facing virtually everywhere is this idea of a predatory activity of landlords who are always seeking to maximize their profit at the tenant's expense. You would think you were uh, sort of in a bullfight or something. It's, it's actually, the more I think about it, from the point of view of a better world, Dan, a very primitive kind of um, almost like a wrestling match. And I'm just awed that this kind of um, 
uh, tension and conflict persists in what is otherwise a very sophisticated and in many ways civilized urban context. Uh, you've been active in doing uh, various, uh, taking various actions to sort of curtail this type of out-of-control predatory activity. Could you talk a little bit about what you're facing, what we're all facing, and what you're doing about it? Uh, absolutely. And, you know, I came to this issue initially uh, in the sale of Stuyvesant Town and Peter Cooper Village, which you mentioned in, in your introduction, where this property and home to 25,000 uh, New Yorkers, uh, which is largely covered by uh, rent regulatory rules, so rents can only go up by a certain amount uh, from one year to the next, uh, suddenly sold to the highest bidder after being a very stable middle-class community built by uh, the MetLife Insurance Company, was sold, as you noted, for a, an extraordinary sum uh, to a new owner who who put together a deal which – uh, could only have worked if they were able to get these rent-regulated tenants out of their apartments as quickly as humanly possible. Uh, mm. The deal did not work, and they knew it, and their lenders knew it. It, it would not work unless they could get these, uh, these folks out of their homes. To me, uh, that is core predatory activity where you borrow so much money. In this case, you know, they, they had put down a billion dollars and they borrowed $4.4 billion. That's B with a, a billion with a B, uh, you know, to be able to make uh, the purchase work. And uh, it, it made them necessarily have to go after people, get them out of the, their units, and try to bring the apartments to the market rate as quickly as they could. And what we've now, seen say, is you say I'm sorry, I just wanted to bring this up. You say get tenants out of their apartments. So it raises a question, of course, of certainly of ethics, but of simple legality. And it seems to me, and please correct me if I'm wrong or enhance it, that in order to get tenants who are living, as far as I know, legally in their apartments, to get them out requires something that is really illegal activity, such as harassment, such as possible uh, deceit regarding their rent payment history or their legal claim to the apartment. I know even MetLife was doing this back in their day. But So here is a bank that is supporting, in effect, illegal business practices in order to arrange for them to get paid their, their loan back on a monthly basis. That, that is uh, it's a fair observation. Uh, now, of course, they would not agree with the characterization that it is uh, harassment or deceit or something illegal. What they were doing was using tools that exist in the law, uh, claiming that people were not legally entitled to their apartment for one reason or another, and using that as a, uh, as a way to target individual residents and to try to claim that they, the residents, were acting illegally and to try to get them out of their apartment. So it was an entire business plan designed to take aim at tenants, get them out of their units, because when they did, 
there's a tool in the law which says once an apartment is vacant, uh, then they could raise the rent rather significantly. So they had a very strong incentive to get people out in order to do that. Uh, and this was not, by the way, just a single bank doing the lending of this $4.4 billion. These were pension funds of Florida and California. It was the government of Singapore, the Church of England, and everybody in between. So this was a massive, massive real estate deal gone wrong, and you could have seen it from the outset. And one exactly. of the things which, which one you of the, did, you saw it from the outset. Yeah. So did I. <laughs> yeah, we yeah. we sure did, and uh, you know we we took steps to try to compete in the marketplace uh, to give tenants an opportunity to uh, to be the buyers and the owners of the property, uh, and you know it was a rather extraordinary effort that we put together. And while we were not successful at the end of the day, we made it very clear to the real estate world that in the next transaction, they are going to be need to be dealing with the tenants yeah. of town directly. And if they don't, obviously they're going to have a whole mess on their hands. Exactly. You know, that was that's something that we could call a net benefit from the entire rather extraordinary effort that you made with a number of cooperating law firms and you know, there were people on the ground. Uh, I think I remember there was a uh, either a pension fund or a, a labor union that were really getting behind your activity as well. So there really was a net benefit, even though it didn't uh, clinch the sale. But since we're going so far in this, I'd like to ask you, Dan, because I was making a case at the time that since the city had donated these 80 acres – uh, to MetLife at the time, back in the 1940s, and offered them an extraordinary uh, J-51 tax abatement, didn't the city have some standing in who it was that would buy the property or designated a landmark, you know, type of status, or somehow intercede in the transaction? Uh, sadly, as a legal matter, uh, it appeared that the city did not have the right to intercede, uh, and therefore all authority over this transaction was a matter of um, moral persuasion and politics and influence, and certainly we at a local level pushed very, very hard uh, to say to the real estate world that we were not going to tolerate these bad acts, and certainly we fought back at every turn after the property was sold. But we did not have, um, you know, Mayor Bloomberg at the time, he said this is a purely private transaction. We are not inclined to get involved here. I strongly disagreed with that. Um, and, uh, you know, it may be that as a technical legal matter, the city's rights to be able to influence the sale uh, had evaporated, but I think that the city has a real concern on what happens to a property where 25,000 New Yorkers live, which are largely covered by rent regulations. There are huge public policy, affordable housing implications for anything that happens there, and that deserves an active uh, mayoralty, and it deserves uh, the attention of all New Yorkers. Absolutely. That's why I want you to run for mayor. 
Oh, all right. I, I, Thanks for that. <laughs> Definitely. Honestly, I, I think that that's exactly the thinking that Mayor Bloomberg, I wrote to him numerous times about this at the time, and I said you could stand up and be a hero and preserve one of the great landmarks, whether it's official or not, of New York. It is a template our community here in Stuyvesant Town and Peter Cooper to the rest of the country and the world for a, a thoughtful, consciously designed community, affordable, as you said, family-oriented, and not limited to that, but very much an integrated community for an urban environment, and you could do a lot to preserve its character here in the city. And, and I think uh, way, he faulted. He faulted. Yeah. I think it's important to note that we're going to get another bite at this apple. And we are still as engaged as we have ever been as a community. And also, uh, you know, in my office, we are working. Uh, we're working with the new administration to develop a plan that will preserve Stuyvesant Town and Peter Cooper Village as an affordable haven for the next generation of tenants and to continue to support the local tenants associations plan to ensure that people who live in the community have opportunities that they otherwise would not have had. So this is this is an ongoing conversation. I this feel is ongoing. Okay. I, I will be will be talking about well beyond my my term in office, I suspect. Okay, fine. Very good. Now that's that's very assuring to hear. I didn't know how seriously that was being taken. And I want to say on that note, um to me, it's rather uh, humorous in some ways, and I, I could say maybe in a little bit of a dark way, that the real estate bubble in New York City is so powerful. It lives within its own little world, and it forgets about the fact that, in this case, we are right, the entirety of Manhattan is, is flanked, of course, by two rivers that just a couple of short years ago, Dan, rose up and they started to flood our streets. And Mother Nature is way more powerful than a real estate bubble in anywhere in the country or world, for that matter. And so real estate values must be tempered by the larger environmental climate change-based context in which we live. And I just find it so humorous that the current operators of, in this case, Stuyvesant Town, feel that they are somehow inured and protected from this larger, truly environmental uh, hazard that faces us all, all of the time. Well, there's, there's no thought? question. Uh, when you have a community uh, anywhere in New York City that is uh, bordering, bordering the waterfront and where you are subject to storm surge like what you've seen in recent uh, history, uh, that you are totally vulnerable, and uh, that continues to be an issue uh, in, in parts of my council district, certainly in lower Manhattan, Staten Island, Coney Island. There's a lot of areas of New York uh, where this is, a, this is a real and live issue. And, uh, you know, we've, we've yeah. seen some federal funds coming our way to help devise plans to prevent storm surge. Uh, there are concepts being drawn up on how to, uh, how to deal with that along the East River, uh, and it's important that we need to uh, to do something because otherwise you face uh, not only the displacement of of human beings but also enormous property damage, economic harm, 
uh, et cetera. So this is a very uh, this is a very real and live issue. It's very real. Wonderful. I'd like to, before moving on to a couple of other topics, I'd like to just drill down a little bit further, if you will, regarding protection of tenants in the city, citywide. And I know because our show is largely dealing with national and international uh, topics, uh, I just want to say to the audience that you know that what goes on in New York is uh, is bellwether for the rest of the country, really. So while the names and faces may change a bit, the uh, fundamental issues remain the same. And what I'm talking about here, Dan, is the destabilizing of apartments, which that turnover to uh, be fair market value is, uh, if I'm not mistaken, of relatively recent import. There remains, because of the Rent Stabilization Board, a rather significantly high annual increases, certainly that began even before Bloomberg, but carried through 12 years of Bloomberg. So right now, talking about treading water, many of the tenants across New York, all boroughs, are up to their their necks up to their ears really in paying rents that are really not sustainable legal but not sustainable that's because uh the bloomberg administration did nothing almost nothing to protect the tenants and the annual increases then there is uh the fact that when apartments don't go to fair market the in turnover increase is also very high and one of the silliest things of them all, and I had the pleasure of speaking with someone on one of your staff in your office recently about this, is the MCI, the Capital Improvement, which is a wonderful idea on the face of it, except for the fact that the tenants have to pay for it even after the elevators are improved or what have you for the rest of their lives instead of a year or two or three of amortization of the capital improvement which is totally reasonable and even the landlord making something on it no problem but forever could you yeah i mean that's really it's a mind-boggling uh loophole (laughs) in the law which allows as you say a landlord to make an improvement put in a new elevator put in a new boiler and charge the tenants for it, put it on their rent bill, and once that is fully paid off, you would think it would come off the rent bills. But no, it stays on there forever, and uh, it becomes an addition to your rent. And that's that's simply unfair to tenants, and it's something that deserves reform. And unfortunately, uh, up in Albany, we did not see the reforms that we wanted to see to these rent laws to create more fairness for tenants, and that was one of the areas we wanted to end vacancy decontrol so that when people come out of their units, their apartments can't be deregulated, which would deal with some of those predatory practices that we were talking about at the start. But also, MCIs, the major capital improvements, they should not stay on the rent bills forever. It's just not fair uh, to tenants, and that really uh, uh, needs to be addressed. And what is the overall sentiment in Albany about life in New York City in this regard? I don't know why Albany is controlling it. That's its own issue. But what what did you feel was the temperature? I know you you organized busloads of people to go up there to demonstrate and show you their their strength. So what what is the sentiment there about? Uh, Mitch, if you're asking me to try to explain Albany to you, 
I'm sadly out of my depth. I cannot understand it. Do not understand it. Uh, frankly, uh, maybe I'm maybe I'm happy that I don't understand it because uh, what what happened yeah. in Albany this year was a real disappointment, uh, and you know New York tenants uh, saw a real opportunity to reform these laws and to strengthen them, uh, but but watched as a uh, as a deal came forward that did not include most of the priorities uh, that we all had advocated for. And you're right, I was uh, leading those buses. We were bringing up tenants and going to make our case. Um, and uh, and sadly, it was uh, it was not a successful year. But it's uh, uh, you know the, these these battles will continue. The laws were were renewed and extended, just not strengthened. Uh, but yeah. we, we need to do better. We do. Where was Governor Cuomo on all of this, Dan? Well, he you know Where did he he, stand? he expressed support for a lot of the principles that I had uh, noted for you at the beginning. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, but at the end of the day, they were not part of the deal. So uh, it's hard to it's hard to know when you have an assembly speaker and a governor apparently for the same things uh, and a brand new Republican leader in the Senate uh, how this was not part of the final equation. Uh, but you know, I suppose that people have to suss it out, draw their own conclusions, and see where we go. Yes, I you know. I've got to say, I feel like something has to happen that's different rather than business and usual in politics in Albany and New York. There's this same polarization that is always happening, and there is a movement afoot that is seeking to bring Democrats and Republicans and independents together in a new way, sort of a an upgraded, progressive way of thinking, Dan. So rather than falling into the usual slots that we all know so well, that they really start with a new kind of new vigor to come up with a new form of politics that isn't polarizing in nature, but it's collaborative in nature. And along that line, in uh, just reflecting a bit before having you on today, I began thinking about this, and I Love to hear what you have to say. What if uh, the city council, in conjunction with Mayor de Blasio, decided to convene a gathering of landlords? I was wondering if it should be the worst landlords, the way the Village Voice used to document every year, or just landlords altogether, to seek to create a new environment, a new uh, sensibility where being generous, this is going to sound funny, generous to tenants in any number of different ways was actually going to be more meritorious for the legacy of the landlord than business as usual. And almost to create a, I don't want to say, um, a, a game, perhaps, of what landlord could outdo another landlord in being good to their tenants, in making sure the rents, besides even what the laws read, more reasonable. It sounds funny. A more beautiful lobby, for instance, nicer, greener grounds, rooftop gardens, you know? I like it. I like it. And, you know, you would think that there is something inherent to trying to uh, rent apartments to people and to encourage them to come to choose your property, say, over another option, uh, that would yeah. create an 
attractive for you to want to treat your tenants well, but unfortunately, with a city vacancy rate for apartments at under 3%, uh, there simply is not a lot of uh, supply out there. So your options are limited, which puts the landlords very much in the driver's seat. So yeah. this is a, you know, this is an unfortunate reality and is very much the reason why uh, we need to create more supply of housing uh, and we need to not lose the affordable housing that we have today. But your idea is right, and in a normal marketplace, that would exactly be what a landlord's priorities would be. Yes, yes. Well, thank you for entertaining the thought. Uh, yes, I'm a bit of an idealist, but I'm also a bit of a visionary. And I do believe, actually, that our society at large is moving in this direction. In fact, quite honestly, there is, I've, I've interviewed uh, the gentleman, have started something called the Compassion Games, which were in direct contradistinction to the film The Hunger Games. And there have been numerous cities across the country, Dan, that have begun these initiatives of, of uh, taking different actions to help the homeless, to feed the hungry, to take care of children, and all sorts of different, you could say, parameters which garner credit in the direction of winning the game on compassion. So it's very clever, and it I, is I like happening. It. You see, it really, it really could happen. I'll get you more information on it afterwards. I can. I'd be very so, interested in some more. Wonderful, wonderful. So let me ask you, I know another issue that you yourself are dealing with is since we're talking about uh, zoning and, and I should say real estate a little bit, maybe we'll move into this, about Midtown East. This is, of course, a very local issue. And its development near NYU Medical Center, near Bellevue, uh, there's an effort to bring um, possibly even the sanitation trucks to be housed there, which I think would be extremely unfortunate. And there's also mention of possibly greening that area so because there's a dearth of green space there. What, where do you stand with this? So when you talk about the rezoning of East Midtown, you're thinking about an area a little bit further to the north of what you just described, um, although there is a proposal for a, uh, a garage for, uh, for sanitation trucks in the, in the neighborhood that you were just mentioning. The East Midtown mm -hmm. rezoning, though, is an area from 39th Street up to 57th Street in Midtown. And the, the, the premise there is uh, that we want to do sensible growth in Midtown. We want to make sure that we get uh, buildings and a district that has been known to be a premier commercial office district for New York uh, to continue to grow and to continue to evolve and not simply to be stuck in outdated zoning rules in New York City. And the reason why this may be of particular interest to your listeners, whether they're in New York or outside, is that we are developing models where we are tying development to infrastructure improvements. And we are saying to developers mm -hmm. as in a recent building on 42nd Street and Vanderbilt Avenue, if you want to uh, build a bigger building, a commercial office building, fine, we will grant you the opportunity to do that. But in exchange, you need to put considerable sums 
uh, toward improving our transit network. In this case, uh, we were allowing a building to go through, and they committed, uh, after we negotiated, to $220 million in infrastructure improvements to make the experience of the Grand Central commuter and Lexington Avenue subway rider better. And those improvements will need to be finished uh, before this building is occupied. And if the costs mm -hmm. of these improvements go up over time, it is on the developer to actually uh, bear that risk. So it's a very mm -hmm. good deal for the public and one which is unprecedented in its scale and is unprecedented in, in its impact. So we're very, very excited about that. That's really that's good to hear. It sounds like there's the spirit of collaboration. You see, I mean, one of the unfortunate uh, assumptions is that tenants do not believe that landlords should make money. And I think that's a horrible, underlying, unconscious, inappropriate assumption. Of course they should be making money. They're bearing a lot of responsibility. The question is, how much? What's <laughs> moderate and what becomes immoderate? That's where the issues lie. Yes, and I think that one of the things that we've been able to show in this rezoning proposal is that uh, you know we will allow for growth and we will allow for buildings that will deliver more to the city and property taxes and economic activity, uh, but we're also going to make sure that the public gets a good deal out of it and that we're able to accommodate uh, new workers who are coming in and to make sure that we're doing our infrastructure improvements before we have all the new development. We, you know, we've seen this problem not just in the Grand Central neighborhood, but all around the city where you see sudden bursts of development and, you know, families moving in, kids moving in, kids being born, and suddenly, you know, the local public school can't accommodate the kids who are in the buildings in the area. And you have wait lists yeah. for kindergarten. All this is to say that you need to plan better. You need to do your infrastructure up front and anticipate what is happening. Or as you see things happening, be able to respond and be nimble enough as a city to be able to fix these problems before they actually become problems. And that's what we were trying to do in East Midtown. And I think we are, uh, I think we're going to have some, some, uh, some great success. Wonderful. Well, I'm really glad to hear that. That's very encouraging. In fact, you anticipated, uh, oh, but one question, is the new building on Vanderbilt going to shadow Grand Central when it's in uh, its fullest form? It's I, not. Well, it's right next to Grand Central. Grand Central is, you know, right smack in the middle of office buildings today, so it's not like Grand Central is getting a whole lot of sunlight. It may not even be getting any sunlight, frankly, uh, directly yeah. on it. But it will be a large right next to Grand Central, which, by the way, to me, is sound planning for a dense urban environment. Uh, you, mm -hmm. you want to put your densest office buildings next to mass transit. It's good for the environment. Yes. It promotes mass transit. It's, uh, it allows True. for density in a place that it belongs. It is a, it's a you know, truly progressive vision of zoning. Um, and yeah. so... You know, it, and, and also you can go a little bigger when you're right next to a low landmark building because it creates a, a little bit of breathing room there. You have a big building yeah. right next to a very little building. So it actually it yeah. helps to create a uh, sort of a balance uh, when you're, you're, you know, you're talking about light and air. 
It's a good point. It's a good point. I just thought of this. What about what if we had high rises that are now see through? Playing. You know, uh, if you could pull it off, I think it would be brilliant. <laughs> that would be great, right? Lots of glass. Lots of glass. All glass. Nobody really likes these glass buildings, but yes. But I'm with you. I know. Okay, it's a, it's a thought. It's a thought. Uh, now, you did anticipate something else I wanted to bring up, which has to do with density levels and um, respecting infrastructure. And who is it, what agency in the city, Dan, is involved in monitoring what the density levels are and water, sewer, uh, garbage disposal, um, even demographics having to do with supermarket um, access? Uh, such as these, who is looking out for access to transportation? Are there, well, whenever, is there an agency you, that monitors this? Whenever you do a new development that requires public approval, and it's a significant enough development that it has impacts like what you're describing, uh, you as the developer need to uh, retain and uh, uh, and and you know, and, and get working an environmental impact consultant impact to study, yeah. study the impacts that your proposed building will have. And then it's on, yeah. you know, the, the public authorities, which is uh, the Department of City Planning and the City Council and the Borough President and the Community Boards, to evaluate whether or not your building should be what you propose it to be uh, based on the impacts that you have identified. And that's you know, it doesn't create a formal requirement on you to do this or that, but it does require that you study and disclose impact, and you leave it to the, de the decision makers uh, to figure out what that should mean about what uh, benefits you should be granted. Yes. You are listening to A Better World Radio with Mitchell J. Rabin. We're on every week here in New York City, although we are heard across the country and the world. And if you do not yet get our weekly free newsletter, please just simply go to abetterworld.tv. That's triple dot abetterworld.tv to sign up for that free newsletter, which announces our weekly Monday public community television show at 7 p.m. here in Manhattan, as well as our weekly radio shows. So make sure you become part of a better world community and family. Today we are spending this show with Councilman Dan Gorodnik. Dan has an outstanding background of representing civil rights, educational advocacy, and is really, I say, a, a councilman for the people. And uh, it's really with great pleasure and honor that, Dan, you're uh, on today and speaking about these really very important things that I know you're very, very involved in and dedicated to. And I want to just say, just stepping back for a moment, even before you got involved in uh, New York City politics, what you were doing regarding changing, unlearning stereotypes is a, is a very high level of thinking regarding how to change and create greater integration between people of of different backgrounds, you know, different colors, races, creeds, etc. And that's a very high level. And then bringing 
uh, public school education and government processes to help bring this about, I think is really a very progressive step. And I'm really glad to hear. Are any of these initiatives continuing today? Yes, they are. In fact, that program uh, has, uh, you know, has proceeded for a number of years. Uh, I had the privilege of directing it for a couple of years um, uh, before I went off to law school. And and you're right, you know, taking those opportunities to get students in New York City to engage with one another across racial and ethnic and religious lines is something that, you know, you you want to have happen. And too frequently, too frequently, people just uh, isolate themselves and, uh, you know, and, and don't, you know, and don't embrace people of, uh, of different backgrounds. And this program was designed not to, like, proselytize or put forth a particular sort of uh, view of the world, but really to, to provoke and to get people, students, to talk to each other across racial and ethnic lines and deal with some of the most difficult issues of the day and, uh, and also learn how to use uh, the law and, um, and activism to affect social change rather than resorting yes. to violence. And so it yeah. was something that I felt very, very good about and, uh, you know, it was it continues to be a, a priority of mine to think about uh, ways to address the civil rights challenges of the day. You know, I did, as you noted in your intro, sometime after I directed that program, there was a rash of African-American church burnings in the South, uh, yeah. And, you know, there was arson suspected in many of these uh, church burnings. And I decided to go myself uh, as part of Habitat for Humanity and the Church Rebuilding Project to rebuild mm -hmm. two of these churches, one of them in southern Virginia and one of them in Georgia. Uh, and I went to religious organizations in Manhattan, and I said, you know, this is important uh, for us to stand up and say that we will not tolerate hatred of any form in this country, and I think it's important for you to sponsor me to go do this, and, uh, yeah. you know, report that Central Synagogue, Central Synagogue on 55th and Lexington said, uh -huh. we're with you. We think that's fantastic. You go as our representative, and so uh, I went as, as their rep for, uh, for about a month to help rebuild churches, and it, I think it sent a very strong message to the congregants and also was an important message for the congregation uh, of uh, Central Synagogue in New York that uh, that, that was something that they uh, were able and willing to do. Absolutely. That is beautiful. Bless you. You know, unfortunately, here we are some years later when church burnings are actually continuing and going on in South Carolina uh, even after the horrific event that took place there, the massacre of nine people recently. Uh, the church burnings get very little media attention, and yet they are to this day persisting. That brings up an entire subject of, of uh, the relationship of the city and especially law enforcement with uh with the people and the way race has been figuring into this nationally and um, that it would happen in a place like New York where where color is so in so many ways celebrated all colors it it's just particularly hurtful and sad that we have such things as happened uh, in uh, 
in Staten Island and uh, recently Rikers Island with the young man who was um, who was arrested and held in Rikers Island at age 16 for being accused of of stealing a backpack, which it was found out that he did not. I mean, could you comment on the criminal justice system and law enforcement and what actions are being taken? I know some are. I know a lot of people in the police department really care about this. No one deserves, no department needs to be uh, painted with the same brush. But there are things going on, you know, that are just horrific. Love to hear yeah, I, I think it's that's a it's a fair observation, and uh, you know, many of us were critical of where we were heading uh, as a city when it came to the extraordinary numbers on stop, question, and frisk uh, toward the uh, the end of 2012, 2013. Yeah. Uh, those numbers are uh, are at a much lower level now, but we continue to struggle to. Uh, to ensure that uh, there is a positive feeling between communities of New York City and the police officers who serve them. I think too, people, too mm-hmm. frequently people do not uh, recognize that uh, police officers are, uh, they are there to protect and to prote- there to serve them and rather view them as, uh, you know, somebody who is uh, somebody to be avoided. And some of that is, uh, you know, is a cause of, aggressive activity, and some of it is just built in, uh, you know, uh, to the way people have interacted with police over time. And I think that the key for us is to get to a better place uh, where, based on training, based on the way that we uh, deploy police officers in communities, uh, and the way that we teach, you know, our students how to interact with police officers on the street, that we need to get to a, a better place so that everybody's sort of rowing the boat in the same direction here. You're talking about, you know, before you were you were talking about people working together. This is one of those areas when you're talking about yeah. police community relations. You need community yeah. and you need police to have the relations that work. Um, and I think that uh, Mayor de Blasio is, is trying to, uh, to explore ways to do that better with, you know, cops on the beat and having more community or sector-based deployment, which I think makes sense. Um, And, you know, as to the point about Rikers Island and and the the abuses that we have seen there, uh, look, you got Rikers Island abuses, which call for reforms, transparency, you know, uh, less segregation um, uh, in solitary confinement and uh, more limits on how you handle prisoners as a general matter. You know, when you are a prisoner uh, in New York City, uh, it is on New York City to keep you safe. Uh, Whether you uh, have committed a crime or whether you are simply accused of having committed a crime, it is our obligation when you are totally and completely in the custody and care of the city of New York to keep you safe and free from abuses. So that is a, uh, a very important issue and one which the federal government has taken an interest in and one which we need to get straight. Uh, but when it comes to reform of these low-level offenses, I think that there are ways to redirect people out of the criminal justice system. So you don't simply have you know, young, poor people who can't, uh, you know, can't pay bail and who were caught up in a, you know, a, a very low-level uh, violation 
sitting in Rikers Island for an issue that's going to get dismissed anyway. I think we can do better. I think we need to think more completely about how we address those sorts of issues. Um, and those conversations are happening right now. You don't want to tie the police's hands. You want to make sure that they are able to enforce low-level uh, crimes and make sure that they have the ability to approach people and to be able to ask questions uh, and to be able to check identification as necessary, but even not loading up the jails on small, uh, small potato stuff. I think, that is, um, I think that's an important priority and one which would help us see um, fewer incidents like what you described a moment ago. Yes. Yes. Well, thank you for that. I appreciate that. Is there such a thing in your knowledge, Dan, of quotas? This is a oftentimes discussed subject. Uh, as far as I know, it's officially denied that there are quotas having to do with things simply as tickets or arrests. In other words, that the police behavior, policing behavior is measured quantitatively through these means. And to me, if that is the case, uh, it is one of the most onerous and unethical and should be completely illegal practices. And uh, what do you have to say about this? Is it true well, or is it not true? You know, I think what is definitely true is that uh, police and agency heads of all stripes uh, they do measure the number of tickets that have been handed out. They measure the number of arrests that are being done. They, uh, they measure all of these things because measuring them is an important management tool. Because if you see some uh, employees, whether they are uh, a, an enforcement agent of the Department of Health or Department of Consumer Affairs or a police officer, uh, some who are uh, bringing in certain numbers and some who are not, from a management perspective, you at least have to ask the question about what is going on there. The police and everybody else will deny that there are quotas being employed. Um, and, you know, I think it's uh, largely uh, the role of the city council and the public to ensure that that is uh, uh, truly the case. But as a perspective of measuring performance and making sure that people are out there doing their jobs, uh, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. The question is when, you know, people are demanded to deliver X, Y, or Z where it becomes an actual, uh, an actual issue. An actual offense. I, I agree with that completely. Measuring uh, is itself <clears throat> an objective matter that you know, any agency, any business needs to do. And that's wholly appropriate. And the cost of that arrest and the cost of the issue of that summons and all of that needs to be quantified. But <clears throat> to measure performance by the number of arrests uh, creates an atmosphere that is completely antithetical to the kind of city I think we, the majority of New Yorkers, really want to see. Uh, <clears throat> it creates the wrong relationship. And um, I'm happy to say that I think most people, most of the time, have a generally decent relationship with law enforcement based on what I see. And that comes from originating with the cop as well as the, the New York citizen. So I think there's a lot good that really needs to be acknowledged. 
and it's more the bad apple syndrome that I think that we have been uh, suffering from and under the yoke of for some time now. And I, I really myself like to see that, that, that handled. And I do think, and I'm glad to hear that there are initiatives. Um, and I think the police commissioner is helping to really head that up. I feel that there, he, he is a humanitarian, and I think that's the right attitude. You know, I, I maybe still, in a silly way, harken back to the old classic films of uh, Officer McGillicuddy on the corner helping the old woman across the street. And, you know, we laugh at that, but my God, that was a more peaceful time. And the relationship between police and uh, people was much more settled and relaxed, and uh, police were very, very helpful. And there have been shows on episodes, uh, segments on things like 60 Minutes that have shown in different municipalities that kind of effort being made by the police to engage people on the beat in the community in a very, you know, kind of a very honoring, respectful way. And it changes everything. It changes everything. Yep, yep, no question. Yeah. So, listen, we're almost out of time. I do want to ask you one other thing here, which involves the greening of New York. Truly, Mayor Bloomberg did much with the uh, – changing, um, creating bike lanes. I'm particularly sensitive to that as a bicyclist. And uh, I, many of us appreciate a lot of those initiatives that occurred during his administration. There have been uh, initiatives. One that I'm wondering about, is there anything that involves taking waste and instead of just plowing it into uh, landfills, outside of New York and New Jersey and Pennsylvania or shipping it to China, which I understand happens. Uh, is there anything being done, Dan, about converting it into energy, usable electricity, so that things like the Indian Point power plant could actually be disengaged? Because for all it may be said how safe it is, there are many of us and a lot of data support that nothing nuclear is actually safe. And a tremendous argument has been made for decades about that. So can you comment on this? Yes, definitely. I think that, uh, you know, finding ways to, uh, to take advantage of um, waste to clean energy uh, technology um, and, you know, to, uh, you know, include more recycling, composting, uh, renewable energy. I, I think that, you know, we've come a long way in New York City uh, to be able to, uh, you know, to, to create a more sustainable environment. Um, but in order for us to uh, ensure that we are a, a truly green environment, a green city, uh, well, we need to make sure that we have uh, much more of our, uh, of our power coming from renewable sources. And as you point yeah. out, uh, that will mean uh, uh, better, uh, you know, better air quality and also 
the uh, you know the ability to close Indian Point with uh, comfort and certainty that you are uh, not mm-hmm. losing an important power source. Um, you know, mm-hmm. a facility which should be closed based on you know its uh, uh, its safety related issues and proximity to the number of people that it is close to. Um, yeah. So. You know, you're, you are right to make that observation, and, uh, and w- you know, w- when I authored the city's first green energy code, it was with an awareness of this fact, uh, and we uh, need to build on Mayor Bloomberg's Plan YC and uh, Mayor de Blasio's amended uh, plan uh, to, uh, to continue to push these sustainability measures and make sure that they are uh, really front and center for, uh, for our, our city's priorities. Wonderful. I love to hear that. And I'm glad you reminded me of your initiating the green code. That is wonderful. What what was its premise? The premise was uh, 80% of our greenhouse gas emissions in New York City uh, come not from vehicles, like in many other cities, but they come from our buildings. And oh, so exactly. what this Green Energy Code said was if you are uh, replacing old systems in your buildings, um, you can't just go from an inefficient system to another inefficient system. You have to go from an inefficient system to an efficient system uh, so as to, uh, you know, to protect the environment, save some money at the same time, uh, and we made it into the law. And it was something which uh, you know, I was pleased uh, to be able to author in my first term in the council and has had a number of years uh, to to go into effect and is working. That's wonderful. I applaud that. And I can be of help to this city, not just through my work in media, but also my work in the green and sustainable renewable energy world. And I'd love to the opportunity to sit down, I can uh, really make some contributions in all of these domains. Well, I appreciate uh, it very much, and I I appreciate that, and I appreciate your having me on this show because, uh, uh, you know, it means a lot to have the opportunity to share some of the work that we're doing here, and and we uh, will, will look forward to the next opportunity. Absolutely. In closing, what words would you like to share with our audience? Uh, I would say that, you know, we are looking to uh, make sure that New York City uh, continues to be a world leader uh, and one which is uh, a fair city, a safe city, uh, where we're not afraid to do big and bold things uh, and uh, where, uh, you know, people who live here uh, understand that uh, the rules will be applied equally uh, to all New Yorkers and where it's a very safe and comfortable place to come visit. And we hope that your listeners who are from outside of New Yorker, New York will continue to come and visit us. We're at record numbers, uh, and um, you know, it's because we have a lot of wonderful things to offer, and we continue to, uh, to do really well in New York. So those would be my parting words. Beautiful. Well, listen again, uh, Councilman Dan Gorodnik, a true pleasure to have you on, and we will continue this dialogue. I'll be in touch with you soon. Thank you so much, and thanks again. Absolutely. Thank you. That was New York City Council Member Dan Gorodnik, who, uh, as I had mentioned, I am a a real fan of. He is a 
politician for the people. And this just does not happen. You can tell by everything that he was sharing. His feet are firmly planted on the ground. He knows how to negotiate. He knows how to arrange, collaborate, and create goodwill between otherwise possibly conflicting parties. And if there's anything to the art of politics, that is one of its chief features. So I'm I'm very glad to have him on and share his knowledge and his experience and his values with our audience. This is Mitchell J. Rabin for A Better World. I'm so glad you joined us. And as mentioned earlier, if you do not yet receive our weekly free newsletter, A Better World newsletter, it comes out only once a week. Please get on it. I write a blog in it often and announce our shows. It's at www.abetterworld.tv, abetterworld.tv. And I'm also pleased to say that we have recently become a nonprofit with the 501c3 designation to help us sustain ourselves. We welcome all contributions. I like to think of them as investments in a better world. That indeed is what they truly are as we provide platforms for people, the sung and the unsung heroes of society, to let people know of the many good things. We don't shy away from the upsetting things or the truth. We care deeply about them as a means of coming up with creative solutions. They're abundant folks, and we love to articulate them and share them here on this show. So thanks again for joining, and visit our website. Also, please send an email. I love your comments and feedback at mjr, my initials, mjr at abetterworld.net, abetterworld.net. And make sure to visit uh, Councilman Dangorodnik's own website as well, which you can get simply by going into the browser and uh, putting in his name. It's right there. Okay, thanks again for joining, and we will leave you all with a touch of beautiful Mozart. Mm-hmm.